Welcome to Conversations with Leaders. I'm Jake Burns, an enterprise strategist with AWS. Today, we're sharing a podcast that discusses the journey of cloud skeptic turned evangelist, Rick Sini. Listen in as he shares the thought process and challenges he experienced while changing the way he ran his company. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very special guest all the way from the great state of Texas. I'm joined by Rick Sini, who's CEO at Three Victors. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Hey, it's great to be on today. Uh, thanks for making the time. I think uh, it's going to be a, a really interesting chat. Before we get into the to the guts of it, let's do let's do the fundamentals of. You know, tell me about Three Victors. Yeah, so uh, Three Victors. I always get the same question: What the heck does Three Victors mean? So, uh, Victor is the phonetic NATO phonetic alphabet for the letter V. So, think of Tango Uniform Whiskey Victor. So, it's the letter V. Three V's. Uh, around the 2004 timeframe, Gartner came out with a paper describing the three V's of big data. Uh, so, those would be volume, variety, and velocity. So, that's how we got the name Three Victors, and we have a little mascot because we're an air travel based big data AI company, um, which is a, a movie from 1980 airplane, a little small snippet, <laughs> which is what's your vector, Victor? Uh-huh. And so that's that's sort of an inside joke with us. So three victors is three V's with a little bit of joke on the airplane. Um, so we are a big data uh, travel AI company. And like, well, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about what that big data looks like because it's more than the odd-sized bit of data. Um, But our job is really to take ridiculous amounts of data and transform an industry, in this case travel, which is essentially doing turnaround times of days, weeks, in some cases for for analytical purposes, and convert that industry over the next five years to essentially doing real-time predictive analytics so that we can actually change the way the half-life of data works. There's actually a slide that came out from Forrester around the 2016 timeframe that talked about the explosive nature of data, the velocity of data, and how important it is for companies, especially Fortune 5000 companies and those in the travel space, to basically move from uh, what I'll call batch-oriented analytics to real-time analytics. And that's our job. And really the only way we could even possibly hope to accomplish that is to leverage the cloud. And it's, it's interesting. I think travel creates such a vast amount of data and it, it just keeps on trucking 24-7. And we'll get, get into some of the details soon. But um, I do love the airplane reference and I promise not to call you Shirley. Um, but uh, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about, about no, I'm yourself. Just I'm just I'm just doing my Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you became CEO of Three Victors. Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm an old guy. Um, I actually am classically trained in high performance supercomputing. So I have degrees in computer science and mathematics. I cut my teeth in the 90s in the oil and gas space on uh, Cray Research supercomputers, Intel hypercubes, thinking machines, a variety of those working in the oil and gas space. Those are the only companies back then that could actually afford $25 million to actually spend on a super 
computer. Did you get to sit on the uh, on the famous Cray couch that was attached to the supercomputer? I did, yes. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very heavy machine. I remember actually helping install one on the 12th floor of a building here in Dallas, um, which had to be reinforced concrete. So, um, but yeah, so the, and there's also one in the University of Minnesota, which has a golden gopher on it, which is one of my favorites. <laughs> and how did you become CEO? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I've been an entrepreneur really since the early 90s. We were in the oil and gas space. Um, around the late 90s, um, oil prices got down to about, I believe it was $7 a barrel. And we were sitting around with my my longtime business partner and chief technology officer saying, we're way smarter than these internet guys. We need to get into the internet. <laughs> So I think maybe three weeks later, we were venture funded <laughs> and we had a business in the internet. Of course, the internet bubble popped around the 2001 timeframe. Um, so kind of got into travel accidentally, had a huge software development shop uh, known as sort of the guys that could do all sorts of crazy, uh, really complicated software development stuff. Got into travel, started a company in 2006-7 called Fair Compare, which does airline ticket comparison meta search stuff, which is still around today. And, and then Three Victors essentially was a uh, R&D project within Fair Compare that we decided to spin out as a B2B company. Um, and hopefully, actually, probably this week, we'll be closing our first round of funding in the new startup. So um, had a long entrepreneurial background. Very exciting. Now, it's, it's interesting because you've, you've taken a, a journey when it comes to, to the cloud itself. And in a recent blog post, which is on the AWS Travel and Hospitality blog, and I'll link that to the show notes, you spoke about uh, your own journey of, of what you would call a, a cloud skeptic to an evangelist. So uh, that's a great transformation there for someone who's used to sitting on $25 million computers that have couches on them to uh, not being able to touch yeah, the field. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a <laughs> yeah, I'm absolutely a bare metal person. So I was a pretty big cloud skeptic. Um, you know, I'd read quite a bit about the cloud because of the economics of the cloud and some of the promises that the cloud provided. Um, but, you know, when you, when you grew up, you know, actually playing with computers and touching computers and writing assembly language and um, actually understanding how computers work, which most modern developers probably don't know very much about mm. and probably don't need to in yeah. some cases, um, in many cases, um, you get to that kind of mindset. It's it's sort of the, the difference between having a Tesla and a 57 Chevy, I think. <laughs> um, so you're, so you have that mindset that, you know, and you know, how can I do performance? How am I going to decouple things? How if, if I don't have bus strength speeds on these particular sets of data and a variety of things? How do I decouple compute and storage? All those things were really pretty worrisome to me. So I was a little bit skeptical about it. Plus the cost factors as well. I mean, you know, when, one of the things that I really never um, understood closely was how I, we did such a good job estimating peak uh, whenever we were building things because generally, uh, you know, uh, at least two thirds of the time, the computing systems aren't running flat out. And um, one of the things that caught my eye was when they actually started announcing billing by the second. Yeah. Um, and not by the hour. And I was like, now this could actually make a difference in how we did our business. Um, you know, how we elastically could create things and, and do a variety of things. And and the data that we're getting is such a massive amount of data. Um, it would be almost impossible for me to actually convince a banker to let me buy hardware nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that the funding models have definitely changed as well. 
And no, so- absolutely. They've completely changed. And so, so we, we started our journey by doing what you would normally do if you're a skeptic, which is, uh, let me prove that this thing can't actually work. <laughs> can't possibly work. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we set out with literally dozens and dozens of different experiments. We had actually um, had our own 400 node Hadoop cluster. It was Cloudera based cluster that wow. we had set up over a lengthy time. Um, and really, honestly, the cloud is really strange because you have to actually take your head and pop it off and spin it around 180, <laughs> especially when you're doing big data applications. Because when you're doing things in the in the Hadoop world, you're you're sort of ingrained about keeping your data close to the actual processor yeah. for speed purposes. Yeah. Um, and then when you get to the when you get to uh, actual putting content on S3, for example, and then accessing it, um, you're actually decoupling compute and storage and you have to completely change the way you think about problems. So you talked about sort of, you know, starting with that, that perspective of, well, I'm going to prove this is, this is not going to work. Were there, were there technical concerns or were there economic concerns? Where did you kind of start with that journey of, of I think it was mostly technical. I think I think that was pretty well known. And I and I in the in the article that I wrote, one of the things that kind of got me was I actually had sitting on my desk a listing of literally hundreds and hundreds of computers that I was paying property tax on. And I actually had a property tax bill that was due. And I was thinking, now the economics of having somebody else pay the property tax just alone. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was looking at the other bill, which was essentially a one-year renewal for our, our co-location facility um, for essentially power and pipe alone. I was looking at a variety of Cisco bills for networking gear because we had some high-speed networking gear that was interconnecting everything. And I was like... Maybe this cloud thing could work if I if we could if we could actually take a look at all this stuff and and one of the things I think that really caught my eye was I wanted to spend more time actually building and less time maintaining. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that I, that I, that caught my eye was it was just sort of at that time where AWS was really starting to get into managed services, managed databases, and a variety of other things. And I was thinking I could reallocate my my very precious time away from worried about, you know, what database updates had to be done this week and a variety of other things and let somebody else manage that vagary um, while we could actually spend more time actually working on the problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a common refrain, and I know that regular listeners will be very disappointed in me if I don't say it, it is the undifferentiated heavy lifting of IT that we're trying to get rid of. And I guess in a, in a world where you've got 400 nodes, you've got, you've got to maintain them, update them. At some point, you look at them saying, well, we need to refresh the CPUs, the memories, et cetera. That's all hard work, but it doesn't really it's, – it's not satisfying in that business outcome way. Yeah, no, to me, you're just sort of spinning, it's sort of a lateral, you're spinning sideways. And it's complicated because especially when you have that kind of stuff, you have stuff that's faster, stuff that's slower. Um, You're trying to balance things. So again, there there was a lot of promise. There was a lot of stuff in the marketing literature. Um, There, you know, um, I had gotten actually into the Hadoop world. It was was kind of funny. They announced the first commercial version of Cloudera. The only companies that were using it at the time were companies like Yahoo 
Yahoo and who could actually afford um, to, to have some of these bigger size clusters. And my my CTO and and co-founder and I decided to take a a class, uh, one of the first ones offered in Chicago. He and I went to the class with 17 other people that refused to wear name badges and said <laughs> they would kill us afterneath the class. <laughs> um, so so we always want to sort of we sort of d- dug into this whole big data environment stuff because we thought it was going to be the future and cloud just happened to, to dovetail into that and as we got deeper and deeper into the cloud and understanding the economics um, and making lots of mistakes tons of mistakes and uh, you know hopefully and generally with the help of the AWS folks in many cases we were we were cajoling them prying them we you know we got on the non-disclosure list so we could see what the futures that were coming and we started to feel pretty good about things. Well, I think it's interesting you talk about, you know, when you were sort of sitting down from an economic standpoint, you had a whole, whole bunch of different bills, including property taxes, which I think a lot of people don't think about. And and you're you're clearly a, a data-driven kind of person. Um, did did the numbers stack up when you actually measured them up and, and, and looked at it? Did it did it work out for you? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, if you started looking at sort of the costs, and and of course, um, you know, in the AWS world, you have to look at sort of on-demand costs, reserve instance costs. In our case, our company uh, today is about a 96% spot-based company. So on any given month, um, we're utilizing spot to tremendous value for us um, in many different clever ways. Um, In fact, I'm not positive at the scale that we're doing stuff. We could actually run our business uh, without having the ability to purchase uh, compute power on the spot market. Interesting. Interesting. Now, we talked a bit about the economics and that's clearly one factor, but often when people are looking to transition to the cloud, they're more concerned around culture than technology. And many of the episodes we've had on the podcast revolve purely around that. What's been your experience with with that mindset of going to the sort of the, the 400 <laughs> node Hadoop cluster that you can see and touch to, to this brave new world of spot instances and and other stuff. As you might imagine, the culture at our company sort of came from the top, right? So we were better metal people, everything bits and bytes. Um, and so, you know, the, the first, the funny thing about was writing about the blog post. I was actually, I was, I actually asked our team, what do you think it's going to cost to move to the cloud? And I need an answer in a week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, and of course, uh, you know, in the post, I kind of recount the fact that I got back and it was like seven times what I was currently paying, which led me to almost instantly know that we needed to pursue it. And the reason <laughs> for that is, is it, it was a cry for, please don't make us don't look dive into this cloud stuff. <laughs> please, please don't do that. And so, so that they, they didn't realize it's just sort of reverse psychology, but it actually caused me to want to dig into it deeper because I knew it couldn't be true. I mean, you know, the explosive growth that's occurred in the cloud, it was easy to see, you know, AWS being a market leader, but you know, we could see Azure and, and Google Compute also come coming around and the the center of gravity, um, almost all the Fortune 5000s, you know, doing some sort of digital transformation. So clearly the momentum was behind it. Um, so um, we just kind of dug in and just, you know, like we we always do. And I always, I always recount too, it's like, hey, we don't need this 400 node cluster. Why don't we do something really crazy? The first thing we tried was actually doing our use case in serverless. Oh, wow. Um, 
<laughs> so I was like, hey, they have this Lambda stuff they just announced in the last year and a half or two. Let's just go, let's just go for the brass ring and try a little serverless stuff. And the weirdest thing is, is that our initial prototypes, which really took a couple of days, actually worked at ridiculous scale. So <laughs> maybe we can talk a little bit about the scale, but essentially on a daily basis. Um, we're taking in anywhere from one to two billion, depending on the day of the week, of user-initiated flight searches and what they get back. So think of it this way. You're on one of 10,000 different apps or sites. You're doing a search for air travel. Uh, I want to go from A to B on these dates, and you're getting back a list of 200, 300 possible results. Um, worldwide, that's uh, just south of two billion of those occurring each day. So if you do the math, um, closer to 1 billion a day is around 12 to 13,000 a second. <laughs> so the velocity of the data is in the tens of thousands of transactions per second. Um, and um, so the first thing we did was, hey, let's just take API Gateway, let's take Lambda, and let's see if we can ingest this stuff. In our case, the data comes in streaming via HTTP posts requests. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, um, and it all worked swimmingly until we saw the first bill. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's the architectural it, piece and then there's the economic architecture. <laughs> exactly. So the first thing we learned was um, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should, especially when you start to look at the economics. So clearly API Gateway was not meant to ingest 13,000 items a second <laughs> um, in its pricing model. Called up AWS. Yeah, we well, probably won't be able to change that too much. So we ended up you know, doing some stuff with uh, Elastic Beanstalk and using spot and you know ultimately getting that cost down by i think five orders of magnitude by the time we were done um, but it took a little bit of time and effort and it, it, there's nothing more shocking than seeing that first uh, first day of charges and when you go uh what are those 433 charges <laughs> well i guess that's the thing is it's it's one of the, the the moves to cloud it's a cultural thing as well as you you get to see in near real time what your cost profile is and what things cost and it's, it's something that a lot of folks don't get exposed to because it's usually, you know, the, the CFO or the CIO or the IT director who's signing off the checks to, to the renewals of hardware. No, yeah, it kind of no, just it's pretty amazing, yeah. actually. Yeah, and once you start to learn it, you get a feel for it. You get a feel for the ideas around all the different pieces and parts. And we started moving over our database stuff. So anything that was database related, we wanted to do a managed service. We were a MySQL shop. We decided to move over everything to MySQL-based Aurora. Mm -hmm. uh, that worked pretty swimmingly. I think we had to actually change like four lines of code in order to make it work. It was pretty amazing, That's actually. Cool. And we had over... I think 1.7 million lines of code that we had to convert over. Wow. So uh, we're a Java shop, um, have been for, for ages, had worked with Sun Microsystems in the 90s on garbage collection and a variety of things, just generally using garbage collected languages for massive amounts of memory-based data it has its own set of issues <laughs> around those kind of things. Um, and so uh, they, we started off with some of this, the simple stuff there um, and then started moving over a lot of our ETL jobs, which were historically MapReduce-based and more recently Spark-based uh, stuff that's going on as well. So, um, and, you know, deciding how we wanted to organize data lakes and what formats we wanted particular files and actually testing it and running tests against our, our on-prem 
cluster versus the other and seeing what the performance metrics were for S3 and how big to make S3 files in order to get them to perform properly with Elastic MapReduce. There was literally li dozens and dozens of experiments trying to get our arms around where we thought that, that the cloud may have some sticking points. Yeah, yeah. And so let's let's maybe dig into a little bit more about the, the case study that uh, that you recently published. And and talk us through sort of what what your solution does for businesses and for travel companies, and then let's also maybe dive into some of the the, the capacities and sizes when we talk about big data. Big means different things to different people. Yeah. So yeah, we have this a massive amount of big data, and so as you might imagine, there is a lot of signal built into that. So uh, when a user types in, I want to go from point A to point B. Um, as as you might imagine, there's lots of users doing that, and we want to sort of quantify that demand, right? And and I'll give you an example: um, coronavirus right now. Um, some of the algorithms that we're doing are predicting to some degree what the change in demand characteristics. Clearly, you know, when they're shutting down flights to yeah. China, especially yeah. long haul flights, but you might be surprised to know that even here in the United States, there's some some softness detected in the last week or so, just generally as people get jitters about traveling more generally. So part of that is to detect, detect that demand component. Um, as you might also imagine, a lot of these websites are being scraped by people <laughs> <laughs> with robotic and some of them are nation state scraping. Some of them are competitive intelligence scraping. Um, so we want to take that and pick out heartbeats and try to detect what's actually a user making a query as opposed to some sort of robotic nature. So um, the data has embedded in it, uh, the pricing data itself. We want to do some predictions on pricing. Um, and the, the, the holy grail of, of what we're really trying to do is, what's, is basically reverse engineering what's called the search to book ratio. So it's, a, it's kind of a simple business model, which is in travel today, I think the last numbers I saw uh, last year was about $26 billion in digital performance marketing spend. Uh, the bulk of that with Google and Facebook on auction-based bidding strategy. So um, I'm going to bid on a route. I want to go from uh, uh, you know Dallas to Melbourne on these particular dates. You can bid on that. Let's say that click costs 3 or $4. But what's the likelihood of me buying that ticket, yeah, for example? Yeah, a conversion. And so if you can actually predict what that likelihood is, you can raise and lower your your bids in that really frothy market. And, and that's kind of the holy grail problem that we're working on. Clearly, we have data that's provided um, also on the flip side of that, which is, you know, what should I be charging for flights? Is our, Am I seeing less demand here? What's the potential forecast? So it's a lot of real-time analytics on a very, very high velocity data set, mostly used in the area of competitive intelligence and predictive analytics around um, ad tech and marketing. So that's the major use cases that we're working on. And it's fascinating because it's that, that classic application of supply and demand, but at, at, at scale and, and at, uh, at very short frequency and very uh, – rapid times. It's those three Vs that the company's named after. Give us a sense for how- Yeah, no, and, yeah, capacity also includes flight schedules. We're monitoring whenever flights are changing and people are moving their planes from point mm. A to point B and adding more seats. So there's a lot of economic effect on that. And, and there's a lot of machine learning um, and algorithms trying to detect a, a lot of these patterns and pattern matching. And the interesting thing for me, just generally, as the, um, as the cloud continues to grow, is that we spend a lot of time 
time on AI and algorithms um, in the early 90s when Smalltalk came out and variety of languages and the Macintosh came out. We just didn't have the horsepower to take those algorithms and yeah. do something clever with yeah. them. And really, to be honest, until the last seven or eight years, most mostly the last six or seven years with cloud computing um, and the ability to do uh, so much more in the area of inference and a variety of other things where you actually have the compute power to bring those those algorithms to bear. Uh, honestly, for the most part, you can't do this on-prem. It, it's a really a cloud-oriented solution. Uh, can only be the thing can solve the problems we're going after. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation because you know many older folks in the in the industry, such as yourself and myself, I sort of you know remember the the AI peaks of the eighties and you know sort of everything old is new again. You're like, well, hang on, haven't we seen this before? But you're right. The difference was <laughs> we had the algorithms, we just didn't have the capacity at a at a reasonable price exactly. point to do it. So it was a great idea. And 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 talking about capacity, maybe give us a, a sense of, of size. You mentioned sort of those those two billion um, data points coming in every day. But you know, when you think about your your own data lakes, et cetera, how how big are they in terms of storage and compute? Yeah, I think today we have, I think, a little over 4.5 petabytes of information and growing by about, uh, depends on the day of the week. As you might imagine, uh, people are actually with their kids and doing stuff on the weekends, so they don't quite as shop as much on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on Mondays and Tuesdays, we might see uh, ingest anywhere, uh, compressed volume somewhere between 25 and uh, 40 terabytes of information each day. Wow. Um, and one of the clever things as we were experimenting was we wanted, this is mostly structured data. Um, we do a little bit of cleanup on ingest, but it's fairly structured information. And one of the, the interesting things was, is one of our developers came up with this idea after looking at how they do multi-part uploads for video, because we wanted to have a real-time pathway. And by the way, our architecture is published out on the AWS website, the first third of our reference architecture. It's out there uh, for people to take a look at um, that used a technique. We were actually doing um, Avro-based input because it made it really fast for us to reread the data in, in Java. Mm -hmm. um, but we were using a technique actually intended for video upload, but actually using that streaming technique. Uh, and we, we, we asked AWS folks, they're like, we've never seen anybody try that before. <laughs> <laughs> but it's crazy enough to work. <laughs> and uh, we still use that technique need today it's quite useful that's really handy and great that you're, you're sort of sharing some of those ideas now um three victors actually joined the adobe's partner network recently and i'm interested as to what that means for you as an organization yeah, no, I think well, we've had a great relationship, to be honest, and uh, we're part of the uh, AWS Enterprise Accelerator Program, so they're helping us with some research and development of a variety of particular areas. And what we found is, as we started providing this this content to our clients, and many of them happened to be moving in digital transformation into AWS, they were asking us a lot of questions about how we did it. <laughs> and we're like, well, our business really isn't to do consulting, but... But um, we want to help you guys along because our businesses provide subscription model for data in what's called the data as a service model, which is sort of a sibling of software as a service, which is a bur burgeoning business, which is uh, centered around data as a service. In our case, um, we're a no PII company. So mm -hmm. by definition, uh, we don't have to deal with the, the privacy laws in 200 countries um, in the data as a service model. And our job is to package up data and insights, essentially 
essentially. So it easily joins with all of our partners and companies' internal assets um, in the in what we'll call the burgeoning data market, which I think is going to essentially over the next several decades be the main economy, at least uh, in the Western Hemisphere, and I'm, it'll ultimately move over to the Eastern Hemisphere as well. Yeah, I think it's a it's it's definitely a trend to come, which is uh, which is pretty exciting. Rick, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your information. And, uh, and I'll definitely be linking to your, your case study and blog post as well. I think it's fascinating for our listeners. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is a place to send that. And until next time, keep on building.